going presently through the flying hour. This is the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. The problem with this polarization is that you can't talk politics anymore. And that's bad for the republic. You know, you're going to go to somebody's house for Thanksgiving and they say, look, Bill, come, but no politics. Don't talk politics because there's going to be an argument because we're so polarized. Well, guess what? If you don't talk about politics, that's one of the necessities of having a free republic. This is the Gargsville podcast number two, and I'm your host, Gargs Allard. Welcome to the land of Gargs. And as it mixes with your world for a little while, I hope you get something out of it that you find valuable in some way. Today, we have Mr. Billy O'Connor on. You know, I went to school with him at the University of Florida. Since he graduated when he was 62 in journalism, he has become an author, a stand-up comic, and a podcast host. We had a few classes together at UF, but the one we had a rapport in the most was a class that was about three hours long and not the most stimulating, to tell you the truth. It was a very large auditorium with over 100 students in it, And it also included a lab, which made it a very long class, to say the least. Now, Billy is a confident guy. He's a friendly guy. And he has a strong voice. He's not at all shy. And that, coupled with his classic New York accent, really stood out among the students. On top of that, he has the gift of gab. So when he talks, people listen. Now, I was the second oldest student by far in that class, as I went to UF from my mid to late 40s. However, he was 16 years older than me, and the kids loved him, as far as I could see. So, we were just a few minutes into class, and he happened to be sitting next to me. Then, to be polite, he leaned in my direction and said, This is a shit-boring class, Gargs! I'm out of (laughs) here! Now, he tried his best to whisper, but his voice was so hearty, let's say, that even his whisper caught the attention of the students, in probably about a 10-row radius around us. Another time, I got to write a feature about him for a local entertainment rag that I wrote for called Insight Magazine. And to this day, I believe it was one of the best pieces I have ever written. As you can imagine, I have fond memories of Billy when we went to UF. But before he came to UF, he led an amazingly adventurous life, being born in Ireland, moving early on to New York, and then going to Vietnam to serve, and then back to New York again. He was a first responder to 911 as a lieutenant in the New York City Fire Department, a Bronx bookie, a saloon owner, and many other interesting things. So we talk about all those particulars and more during the interview. Therefore, I would say if you stay tuned, you will not regret it. And above all those things, though, what I like about him the most, and I think what resonates with many other people, is that he is genuinely a good-hearted person. But before we get to Billy, let me ask you this. When you're walking into a service plaza or a department store or some form of a convenience store like a Wawa, for example, you know, there's new Wawa's here in Gainesville. They're just fabulous, all plush. But seriously, if you walk into one of those establishments and somebody holds a door for you, what do you say? Most people, I think, would say, thank you. But let me ask you this. Then... What if there's another set of doors and they hold it for you again? What do you say then? Does it feel awkward to say thank you twice? And does it seem rude to not say anything at all? Since childhood, I have pondered this question and now finally 
have grown to a mature man of 56. And according to most manuals that I have read, a man doesn't fully mature until he's about 70. But I have figured it out. In fact, I did it today. When I went through the first set of doors, I told the woman, I appreciate it. And of course, I picked up speed because I was a good distance away when she held the door for me the first time. You know, sometimes you're holding the door for somebody. You have to make that call. Should I hold the door or are they too far away? I felt I was too far away, but this person was so nice that they held the door for me. So I feel at at that point, the only polite thing to do is to, you know, make a little semi quasi jog. So I did that and I said, thank you. And then she opened the second door for me. And I said, I appreciate it. So not only did I say I appreciate it, but you could tell that she felt like I wasn't being phony. I wasn't feeling awkward. It was a very smooth transition. And I was very proud of myself. So you don't have to feel like a bull in a china shop. Anyway, that was one of my major breakthroughs of the week. Now, as, as I mentioned before, I do Uber to earn money. And hopefully one day I won't have to. Of course, I'll lose some of the material for my show. But I notice when I'm out there Ubering and McDubering, sometimes, you know, I'll stop for food or supplies, you know, for the home. And I'm out there interacting with the public in the daily world of Gainesville, Florida. That is actually my inspiration in life. I think we should be inspired by the things that we do that we wouldn't do otherwise unless we had to. At least we can get something good out of it. And it's. I think it's good to also go out and get out of your own head and realize there's people out there struggling with various degrees of competence and mental stability, trying their best, just like you are, to get somewhere in life. So I have nice conversations with many interesting, intelligent people when I'm driving Uber from all backgrounds, as this is a university town. I also have come to understand this. Forget covid The number one pandemic in this country, I believe, is batshit crazy. Now, all of us have some shortcomings, and I'm saying almost all because I'm leaving open the possibility that some people don't. After all, I'm not omniscient, but everyone I have met, I believe, has some shortcomings. So anyway, uh, most of us, despite these shortcomings, are functional beings as we navigate through this life toward the inevitable waning and death of the physical body. But when we're walking around out there in these body suits and when they're new, you know, we're young people and they still have a good charge in them. I mean, sometimes they can go all night. But when we get a little older, we start to realize that we have to start doing the right things to get maximum efficiency out of the body. And at 56 years old, that's the stage I'm in right now. I don't know about you. I think, you know, once we get past our mid-20s, we start to realize that we have to take care of ourselves. We have to do things like eating right, don't eat too much, getting enough sleep, enough exercise, take your vitamins, see your doctor regularly, check your blood levels. And, you know, if you want to deal with stress, practice meditation or yoga or positive affirmations or whatever you can to de-stress and realize that you are something greater than the physical manifestations which we see around us and are ever mutable on this frequency of existence that we're temporarily in. Anyway, I have come to understand, and I'm glad you waited for this, that the pandemic in America, and I'm not at all minimizing COVID, which is a terrible thing, but the greatest pandemic in America today is the disease of being batshit crazy. 
Not everyone. Most people are relatively well adjusted to the comforts of their subjective worlds, but there are some people who are standing on the borderline of functionality and non-functionality, and you know who you are, and you can feel them teeter when you pick up some of these poor souls. For example, if you're driving Uber, and you know, perhaps if you're good boys and girls, and listen to this whole show, I'll even tell you an Uber story in our last segment. Would you like that? Anyway, another thing I was thinking about, and yes, it's true, you might not believe it, but yes, I do too struggle sometimes with a weight problem. So anyway, I went to a psychologist and she basically told me that I like to eat good food a whole lot. And this was really an an epiphany for me because I had never thought of it. I figured I was stuffing my feelings or trying to solve my problems or even forget about life with a drug called food. But now I found out it's just because it tastes good. I really like to eat. I have a zest for eating. And perhaps some people who are skinny don't appreciate food as much. They've certainly had less food experience, as Larry David once said in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Anyway, I digress. People are batshit crazy because the material world is basically, in my estimation, a remand home or a prison house. And there's a hospital wing in this prison house, a psychiatric ward, if you will, But sometimes the hospital gets filled up. There's not enough room left in it. So people are seeping out into society. And by the way, this is not a heartless desecration of their humanity or even more so their ultimate divinity. But this society, by the way, is not helping us to feel safe and secure. In fact, we're feeling more and more unsure as we go along as a population, I feel, in a world that we don't feel fit for. This is just an observation, folks. And in my opinion, we have to find solace in our own lives so we can show compassion and patience with people who may be on the verge of losing it. And we have to do that with ourselves as well. So anyway, I drive around this town and lately I've been seeing more and more homeless people begging in the streets at almost every intersection. They make unique signs and they must be making something, some kind of money. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hanging out in town so much. And the police, I think, don't enforce panhandling ordinances so much, as far as I can see, because if people can make enough money from soliciting donations on street corners, then that means an ease of pressure on public services to take care of them. It's just a theory. You know, the police would have to be in coordination with another branch of the government, but that may be happening. I don't know. A lot of people have been victims of the system, that's for sure. And there's a huge tent city across from the airport. I had to drive a homeless couple there once at night and it was kind of a dicey situation. Anyway, sure, ultimately it's the fault of many of these homeless people uh, in many cases, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have compassion for them. And some people, they actually, they fall on bad luck and they fall through the cracks. Anyway, there seems to be a lot of homeless people and some are saner than others. And you'll find that if you actually try to have a conversation with them. And there are also people who have some chemical imbalance or have let themselves go through excesses of drugs and alcohol, or they just plain practice activities which bring more and more bad karma. So I'm not just talking about homeless people. I'm talking about people who who are on the verge of being batshit crazy. Bob Dylan once said, people are crazy and times are strange. I'm locked in tight. I'm out of range. I used to care, but things have changed. I still want to care. I really do. 
Of course, people can't be reached unless they are willing to reciprocate. But then again, they may be more willing to be reached if we deal with them with patience and love. And that's really how we should be dealing with everyone we meet. Not just new people, but we have to appreciate the friends and family we have in our in our lives every day. Because after all, we're not going to be here together forever. Ever notice that people don't want their pictures taken and put up on social media often because they don't like how they look? Wouldn't want someone to see me like that. I understand that some people are just private in general. And I'm not much of a private person, but I'm like that too because I think I look way overweight. Don't put that picture up, man. It looks too fat. But the other day I realized, what the fuck am I trying to hide? I'm walking around like this every day in front of people anyway. Who am I kidding, really? Actually, the answer is I'm only kidding myself. I don't want those social media pictures up because I don't want to face myself or the bodily condition that I have allowed teamed up with the aging process, of course. But people are already seeing me like this anyway, every day. And, you know, some even still like me. So, If they accept me the way I am, then why can't I accept myself and be more comfortable in my own skin? The skin is only temporary anyway, and we are all the same inside. At least that's my theory. That's my realization. So I should own that, and perhaps that consciousness might lead to me, perhaps, just perhaps, making better health decisions and uh, make my physical manifestation look more healthy and vibrant and less repulsive. Who knows? But then again, like my psychologist said, you really like food. So now, after a little message from our sponsors, it's Mr. Billy O'Connor. Hi, folks. It's the old dog whisperer himself, old Uncle Hound, here to tell you about a brand new product of mine called Old Uncle Hound's Vegan Dog Treats. It's just like the treats our dog's ancestors used to eat here in North Central Florida in the 70s. Only they're vegan, and they taste good for both dogs and humans, especially old hippies. Mm-hmm. Just munching on one right now. Tastes good like a vegan dog treat should. But don't eat a full bag of them or your dog might get angry at you and scratch some Lyme disease ticks all over your body. Old Uncle Hound's vegan dog treats are now available in fine pet stores everywhere. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Hey, Billy, how's it going? Do you mind me asking how old you are now? 72, brother. You can ask me anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Billy O'Connor on today. He's a former Bronx bookie, a former New York City firefighter, a former saloon owner. He's a stand-up comic, an author, a podcast host, a father, a husband, and a member of the human race. You've done a lot of impressive stuff in your first 72 years, but you have a whole lot more living to do now, and just wondering what's up, what's going on in your world? Oh, well, Jesus, God, I'm busy as hell, brother. You forgot to put good speller. He's also a good speller. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've been busy as hell since I uh, got out of Gainesville. I, uh, I'll give you the, the people listening a quick bio. I uh, was born in County Cork Island. I came to this country in 1950 by boat through Ellis Island. I grew up in the streets of the Bronx. After the Bronx, I got out of high school. I went to Vietnam. I uh, did a year in Vietnam from 69 to 70. I came back from Nam. I worked for Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters for a while. Then uh, 
I went down to New Orleans for a week. I ended up staying two and a half years. Started tending bar in New Orleans. Then I came back to New York. I opened up a couple of bars of my own. Then I became a bookmaker, an illegal bookmaker. Then I got on the New York City Fire Department for 20 years of the proudest years of my life. I was the first responder at 9-11. Through it all, I was an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic and uh, abused drugs and alcohol. And uh, finally, after at the age of 58, I decided to finally get smart to myself. I put the plug in the jug. I sobered up. I went to the University of Florida, where I met you, of course, at the tender age of 58 and graduated 62 at 62 years of age and started doing stand-up comedy and started writing. Now I have uh, four books out. I have uh, Confessions of Bronx Bookie, The Make If These Lips Could Talk. Uh, I have another book coming out called uh, Lamar's Vision. And uh, I'm also uh, involved with a podcast with a producer in Hollywood, Frank Pace, called The Mick, A Mook, and A Mike. And uh, this Saturday, uh, we're having our 9-11 podcast because, of course, I was a first responder and I'm having a deputy chief, John Sullivan, and another retired lieutenant from Ground Zero. And uh, we'll have our 9-11 show Saturday. And that's, uh, if you'd like to see the podcast, it's on a Mick, a Mook, and a Mike on Facebook or on uh, YouTube. And uh, we'll be broadcasting 5 p.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. Pacific time. But uh, the book is the book seems to be doing well with advanced sales. I, I had the first two books I self-published because, uh, as you well know, Gargs, it's two, two different things be, between being uh, a good writer and letting people know you're a good writer. So it's two different skills. But uh, finally, the third book, uh, If These Lips Could Talk, which I co-wrote with uh, producer Frank Pace. He's the producer of uh, numerous hit television shows, uh, Murphy Brown and uh, Head of the Class, uh, The Don Rickles Show. So with his aid, we got published through acclaim. And then he co-wrote the second book with me that's coming out soon called Lamar's Vision. And that's also published by acclaim. So... Finally, I'm legitimately published. All the books I think are good reads. And if, if you look on Amazon, the, the, the reviews for uh, Confessions of Bronx Bookie are off the hook. Uh, the reviews so far, the advanced reviews for If These Lips Could Talk have been astounding. And uh, Brooke Shields wrote off forward. And uh, the book has been endorsed by Candace Bergen and George, George Lopez and uh, many, many, many celebrities. Because Frank uh, lives in that world, you know, uh, obviously. Uh, as a producer of so many hit television shows, uh, he runs around with a different class of drunk than I used to run around. <laughs> so what is that book about? Uh, if These Lips Could Talk is, uh, it's about Frank's astounding life, actually. and But they're all not really about Frank so much as the people that he met along the way, you know? So there's a... Uh, there's one chapter about Sylvester Stallone. There's a chapter about uh, Murphy Brown, Candace Bergman, how things are made behind the scene, what a producer has to do, uh, various anecdotes about well-known celebrities, uh, John Wayne, Bob Hope. And each chapter is self-contained pretty much the way I wrote Confessions. So each chapter has a beginning and an end, but of course the whole book, it still leads to the logical conclusion of the book, you know? The reviews, the advanced reviews have been off the hook, so hopefully it sells. Uh, 
it's way you know, it's like the tree in the forest you know once it falls you want people to know it fell so uh, you want to get as many people as possible to uh, at least take a look at it yeah i'm very excited about you know things that have been happening to me i'm 72 years old now and uh i've had a, what i think is pretty interesting life i think uh if anything uh, my life is let people know that it doesn't have to end at 62. My life just started getting going at 62. Uh, the writing and the stand-up comedy have been a blessing. It just gives you a reason to put your legs on the floor every day. You know, it's been a lot of fun. What do you enjoy more, the writing or doing your stand-up act? Well, the stand-up is immediate gratification. You know, like when you stand in front of 600 people and uh, you're making them laugh, the rush is, uh, is incredible. I was also a compulsive gambler, which is why I became a bookie. And I always compare stand-up comedy to like putting $5,000 on a game with no money. You know, the rush, the excitement from it is, is remarkable. But writing is my passion. You know, I, I feel there's millions and millions of stand-up comics. You know, of course, only a few ever get the blessing of, of making it. The one good thing about being a stand-up comic, and I tell people as often, is that if you're having a conversation with four or five people and you're boring, they all think it's their fault, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's... So that's a bit of a blessing. But the writing is my passion. And uh, from what I understand, I mean, my first book won, a, won, a, won an award, for a writing award. And uh, I love to write. I mean, I, I, I think the, the essence of good writing, the essence of good writing is to be concise, is to say as much as you can in as few words as possible. When I met you when I was at the University of Florida, of course, I took journalism and because uh, I wanted to learn how to be a writer. I certainly didn't want to be a cub reporter at the age of 63 years old. So, But I knew I had a lot of stories to tell, and I wanted to know the best way to tell them. And journalism really gives you that tool. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, you met Mary Teresa, I think. She was a, an academic. She had two master's degrees and a doctorate. Uh-huh. And uh, when I first got published, when the first thing I ever wrote was just an English one-on-one paper. And they went viral. And after it did, I, I got to tell you, it was intoxicating. I said, holy Christ, maybe I can write. I mean, you know, I started getting emails from all over the world uh, from, a, from a published piece that went into a, to a publication called Counterpunch. And it was called The Day I Lost My Innocence. And it started out as an English 101 paper. And uh, when it went viral, I said, holy Christ, maybe I can write. So I asked my girlfriend, what's the fastest way to learn? And she said, well, take journalism. Because journalism gives you the tools. It gives you the the blocks and the cement to how to be a good writer. Whereas if you take English or creative writing or whatever, creative writing classes have killed more writers than alcohol. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> go back to Chaucer and Shakespeare and all the stuff that you learned in high school. Whereas journalism teaches you, listen, writing is about verbs. Verb is Latin for word. That's the essence of good writing, explosive verbs. You have to have an explosive verb in your sentence. You're trying to eliminate the, the be verbs. And you're never saying four words, which you can say in two. You're never saying eight words, which you can say in four. So you want specific nouns and explosive verbs. Like, for example, uh, if I said to you, the dog ate his food quickly. Well, obviously, that's a shit sentence. It's a garbage sentence. You want specific nouns. So you want to say, well, the dog didn't eat his food quickly. The dog gobbled his food. So you want an explosive verb, gobble. Now you want specific nouns. Oliver gobbled his alpo. Oliver gobbled his alpo was obviously a much better sentence than the dog ate his food quickly. You know, so that's the tools. That's the essence of good writing. When I was at the University of Florida, I, uh, they, they emphasized in journalism the importance of the lead 
And the lead, as you well know, but maybe your listeners don't, is the first sentence of your piece. And the lead has to grab the reader because your first sentence is the most important sentence because if you don't grab the reader there, of course, you've lost them for the rest of the, for the, rest of the piece. So taking that bit of information, I went to Barnes & Noble and I went to the bestseller section and I opened up every book that was in the bestseller section and I wanted to read the first sentence of each bestseller to learn you know, how, how these writers grab the reader. And there was one sentence that I think is the greatest sentence I've ever read in American literature. And uh, it's pretty much everything I'm talking about. It's simple, but yet it says so much and it grabs the reader. And it was by Alice Walker, mm-hmm. who, as you well know, I mean, Jesus, you can't get much better writing than Alice Walker. And the first sentence of her book was six words. They shoot the white girl first. That was the sentence. I think it's the most remarkable sentence in American literature, and I'll tell you why. They shoot the white girl first. Now, it's six words, but it tells you, one, that there's, there's been a murder, or two, that there's been more than one killer, killing, more than one killer, three, that there's going to be more killing, and four, that it's racially motivated. And she says it all with six words. They shoot the white girl first. Now, notice she says they shoot the white girl first. She doesn't say they shot the white girl first. By making it in present tense, she puts the reader right there at the murder. They shoot the white girl first. So in six words, she not only tells you all that information, but she puts you right at the scene of the murder. That's writing. That's remarkable writing. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's a great example of what writing is all about. So journalism will teach you get the get the ethic what they call meta discourse excess words. You uh-huh. don't say starting. You don't write and say, in my opinion. Well, we know it's your opinion. You're the guy writing the piece. We don't need that nonsense. You're wasting the reader's time. Never waste the reader's time. If somebody it's, says, "I remember," I remember the time. Yeah, exactly. That's nonsense. That's meta discourse. You want that out of the out of the writing. You want to say as much as possible with as few words as possible. If you read a sentence that it said, the sides of the hills were covered with trees. Okay, the sides of the hills were covered with trees. That's a garbage sentence. Why not just trees covered the hillside? Get all, get the subject, then the verb, then the object. Trees covered the hillside. Now let's go back to specific noun. What kind of trees? How about pine trees covered the hillside? Now why use covered? Let's use uh, a more explosive word. How about blanketed the hillside? How about diapered the hillside. How about pine trees diapered the hillside? So you're using pine trees diapered the hillside. That's five words. And you're giving the reader much more information than you would with the sides of the hills were covered with trees. And that's nine words. So you're wasting the reader's time. You never waste the reader's time. That's what writing is all about. When I wrote Confessions, it took me about a year. Uh-huh. It's pretty much a memoir or, uh, of my life, you know, uh, Confessions, because I had had I knew you know, I, mean, I had an interesting life. I mean, I was a drug addict and a drinker, and I wrote about my experiences in Vietnam and the Wallens and the fire department, and sober, getting sober to go back to school. It took me about a year to write it. It took me a year and a half to edit that book. I mean, I must have went over that book three hundred times with a fine tooth comb to eliminate all the excess words. There's a famous story by uh, about an author who was so precise about editing that he thumbed, he actually thumbtacked each page of his book up on a wall 
and looked at each sentence through binoculars. Kate Talese actually was the writer who did that. His, he was so concerned about having one excess word in his book that he looked at each sentence through binoculars to make sure he didn't waste the reader's time. To me, that's editing is not cleaning up after the party. Editing is the party. Good writing is about editing, editing, and editing some more. Never waste the reader's time. That's the whole deal about writing. I have a question for you. You know, I'm fifty. Sure, I'm fifty six right now, and uh-huh. I always feel like, frankly, that I'm running out of time, and it makes it a little harder to to engage in what may be considered like tedious tasks. You know, like you know the craft of writing. But it seems to be a, a passion of yours. So when you're doing it, are you just in the moment and you're not thinking of anything else? Yeah, I never get writer's block. Uh, never. Ever, ever, ever. And uh, as a writer, the first rule of writing is write what you know, number one. You write what you know. And you're a writer, so you carry a pen. If you were a plumber, you would carry a wrench, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, you, you have to carry a pen. You're a writer. Sure. This way, when you're driving along in your car or you're just walking along sometime and you get an idea, just write three words to trigger that memory. Because if you don't trigger the memory, the memory's gone. Right. So when I write, I write like I'm sitting down on a bar stool talking to you and I'm telling you the story. I just throw it on the page. You know, I, just like I'm sitting in a bar telling you, well, let me tell you this. Let me tell you what happened when I was, I was doing acid, when I was doing LSD one day. This is what happened. Uh-huh. And I'll just tell you the story. Throw it on a page. Just I just toss it out there. I might write, might write three pages to tell you that one story. And then I try and cut it down to as few words as possible. See if I can get every bit of that information down to a page, maybe even a half a page. Because that's explosive writing. You don't sure. want to bore the reader. So you, you, truly, you truly enjoy this process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I really do. Uh, writing comes from the heart. Good writing comes from the heart. You write what's in your heart because that's where the good stuff is. You know, the stuff you wake up in the middle of the night and you say, oh, God, I got to let me write three words down to trigger that memory. That's where the good stuff is. It's down in your heart is where is where the blocks and the cement comes in. That's where the that's where the rules of writing comes in. That's how you write, how you make it palatable for the reader. But the good writing itself. So the, the editing comes from your mind, but the writing comes from your heart. So I don't sit down in, the, in front of a computer with writer's block. I got about maybe 63 word triggers of stories I want to tell. And then I just tell the story. So as you're going along, what if I was sitting in a bar? Right. So if you're going along in everyday life, you know, you have your pen and you know, a a little notepad or something and something great. If you got a notepad, but even if you don't, you can write it on your arm. You can always find stuff to write. (laughs) You know, George Collins famously wrote 90% of his bits on his arm. He just write three words to trigger the memory that he wanted to do a comedy bit about. And, Colin was probably one of the greatest wordsmiths ever of stand-up comedy, you know? He was amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, even his bit on football, comparing it to war, is a re- remarkable uh, metaphor, and uh, he carries it into a 20-minute bit. Now, as a comic, I know that all 20-minute bits start could start as a three-minute bit or a four-minute bit, and then the more you do it, the more you add to it. And that's another good rule of writing. Never throw away anything that you've written, ever, anything. Because over the years, well, I'm a, I'm a much better writer than I was seven years ago or eight years ago when I started writing in school. So things that I might not have thought was, was that good, well, they might not have been. 
But eight years later, I can look back at that memory and say, oh, look at the way I wrote this. I can make this a good piece. And you can rewrite it as a good piece. So you never want to throw away anything you've written. And another rule of writing is you write what you know. You write what you know. I write, I write about my experiences in 9-11. I write about my experiences as a firefighter in the South Bronx, very busy years. I write about, about sobriety, about being a drunk. And I write about being a bookmaker. I write about gambling because I know that, that life. I lived it. I, I write about Irish drunks. I know about Irish drunks. I was an Irish drunk. I am an Irish drunk. I'm not going <laughs> to write about the black experience in Detroit. I don't know anything about the black experience in Detroit. So you write what you know. That's, that's the, the, another rule of writing. And, but the hardest thing about writing, and it's also the hardest thing about stand-up comedy, is to remember that there's only one you. Don't be a poor imitation of somebody else. Find your voice. You have to find your voice on stage and on the page. Write in your own voice. And that's the most difficult thing, to realize, you know, what you've been told all your life when you write uh, in English classes throughout your life. You want to sound smart. Nobody gives a shit if you're smart. Nobody cares. You have to write in your own voice. You don't want to write academic. You don't want to never use a big word when a small one will do. You know, you don't want to use fabrication when you can say lie. Write as simply as possible. You want to reach as many people as you can. So write simple. Don't waste the reader's time and write what you know. You know, give the readers information and try and make it as entertaining as possible. Those are my keys to writing. I, okay. I, somebody asked me, I said, there's three rules of writing. Unfortunately, nobody knows what they are. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's three rules of good writing. My three rules are uh, fall in love with every opportunity, start drinking at the early, uh, an early age, and uh, my third and most important rule is never write about what you can remember. Write about what you absolutely cannot forget. Every one of your listeners out there has a story that I want to hear. Every one of them has done something or had something happen to them that's so unusual that I want to hear that story. Now, that's a story that they absolutely cannot forget. That's what you should be writing about. Not what you remember, what you absolutely cannot forget. That's really good advice. Thank you. I've been taking notes. (laughs) It's hard to believe that anybody will listen to me. I'm probably the only guy, only five and 72 years old, is retired and broke. But I got things under your eyes, and I'm always looking for that ship to come in. But I got to tell you, broken out, I wouldn't trade any bad moves I ever made throughout my life because I think, in reality, bad decisions make great stories. You know, <laughs> and I made a shitload of bad decisions. You know, when you're dealing with alcohol and drugs, uh, the greatest thing that ever happened to me, and the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, putting that plug in the jug and trying to stay sober because, uh, uh, as everybody knows, alcohol is a genetic disorder. And, uh, uh-huh. Alcohol doesn't really run in my family. It gallops. I mean, everybody in my family's dead from cirrhosis over the years. I've already outlived 80% of my family at 72 years old. You know, an interviewer once asked George Burns what his doctor thought about his smoking and his drinking. He was about 98 uh-huh. at the time. And his answer was, my doctor's dead. <laughs> <laughs> There's more old drunks than there are old doctors, right? So I think I'll have another round. 
Hello, this is Garg Zallard, host of Power Pop Portal, the Gainesville Grooves, and the Gargsville Radio Hour. I'm here to tell you you can become just like me with my brand new 777 diet program, as seen on infomercials everywhere. I developed the 777 diet program to make my life simpler, and yours can become simpler too. I will personally show you how to gain 7 pounds in 7 days on only $7 a day. That's 7 pounds in 7 days for only $7 seven dollars a day you must not be averse however to a diet consisting primarily of pizza and ice cream that's the 777 program available at walmart walgreens and across the street at cvs tell them garg's allard sent you but uh, my life has been immensely better since i've been sober in every respect and, 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 you know, writing and doing stand-up at this age, I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that at 72 years old, I'm going to become the darling in the nursing homes. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it does give me that outlet, you know, and, and uh, it's a sounding board as well. When I'm on stage, I can do stories and see the reaction of the crowd with that immediate gratification. And, of course, the bigger the laughs I get, I can say to myself, well, that's a story I should write. That's the sounding board, you know? It's... Uh, I said, that's a story I got to write. Well, that story I got to tell in print. That story I got to tell in print. And of course, my life has been nothing if eclectic and diverse. So consequently, I've got a lot of stories I want to tell. And Frank Pace, uh, my, my partner now, is the producer from Hollywood, he's had a remarkable life. And of course, the people he's dealt with, he's got a lot of remarkable stories to tell. So if these lips could talk, by the way, it's published by Acclaim and coming out uh, next week, it's going to be published. That's exciting. Uh, so, yeah, it is exciting, man. It's exciting for me to get legitimately published. And, uh, of course, it'll be available on Amazon and on Acclaim. And uh, my website is, uh, our website is a make a mook and a mic, because that's our podcast. Next week, we have we have a 9-11 special this week, because uh, it's cause I was at 9-11. And, uh, I want to settle a lot of the uh, conspiracy theories and everything else that goes along with 9-11. And I'm going to have guys that know what they're talking about or on the ground. And we'll deal with all of that and talk about the camaraderie of the fire department. And next week we'll have it on NBA uh, All-Star uh, Artist Gilmore oh. uh, on our p- podcast. So, uh, Frank, uh, he was also he was quite a force in the NBA. Yeah, in the ABA first and then the ABA. And let's right. say, in 1969, he took Jacksonville University, a little tiny school with 2,500 people to the final four, to the big game itself, you know, oh, to the wow. big match against UCLA. How tall was so he? Was he like 7'2 uh, or 7'3 or something? Yeah, besides that, his vertical leap is about three and a half feet. When he's fully extended, I, his, his arms go over the backboard by a lot. And back then, uh, he, he had a big afro, which made him look even bigger. Yeah, <laughs> Hardy, but he's with Kentucky, too. Yeah, Hardy, I mean, when he's with Jacksonville. I mean, Artis is going to be a fascinating guest. And, and one of the reasons we're having him on is because Frank Pace, my partner, uh, is Artis's agent as well. And he's also Rod Carew's agent. So we're going to have Rod Carew on uh, within a couple of weeks after that. So I'm getting to meet fascinating, successful people because of Frank. And one of the pieces of advice that Frank gives in If These Lips Could Talk, and as a successful producer, there's a lot of good advice in that book for people that want to get into show business, whether it be stand-up comedy, whether it be writing or whatever. And one of his biggest pieces of advice is... Once you've established a relationship with somebody in this business, you never give up on that relationship because this business is all about who you know. I mean, uh, you got to be incredibly lucky to be successful as an entertainer. But of course, knowing the right people 
makes it that much easier. I mean, how many times have you walked into a lounge act in Las Vegas and uh, you see a guy playing the guitar and you say to yourself, holy God almighty, how could this guy not be famous? This guy's terrific. Well, you know, there's a lot of things along the way that leads to success and a lot of breaks have to come your way, but certainly uh, the relationships you develop along the way is a big part of success. You know, uh, I have a buddy, Jack McGee, who's an actor, and Jack was my chauffeur, my engine chauffeur, when I was a lieutenant in the South Bronx. And uh, he eventually left the job to become an actor. And his first role was in Backdraft. And he played an engine chauffeur. That's what he played in Backdraft. You know, Ron Howard's uh, movie. I saw that movie. But, right. Well, Jack played an engine chauffeur. And later on, he was in Rescue Me. And he played a chief. He's a little fat guy with a dumpy face. Great guy, Jack. You know, uh, but the relationships that he established with Ron Howard and Kurt Russell, you know, kept him busy as a character actor throughout his career. Because it's like being a stand-up comic. Look, I know guys that are on the verge of making it. Like, you know, Paul Verzi, uh, who's a good friend of mine, he's a stand-up comic. He opens up for Bill Burr, you know? He, now he headlines all over the country by himself. But he's opened up for Bill Burr in front of 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden seven or eight times and all over the world. He's traveled all over the world with Burr. And Paul's a friend of mine, you know? But Paul Verzi is not going to take somebody on the road with him They've got to be a decent comic, but he's not going to look for the funniest comic. If he's going to go on the road with a guy for six months, he's got to have a rapport with the guy. He's going to be living with the guy for six months. You're not going to take on some guy just because he's funny if he's a, if he's a pain in the ass, you know? So obviously, you know, you want to nurture relationships in show business and with writing as well. I mean, you know, I know I can write, man. I've been told I can write by, by professors at the University of Florida and by renowned writers and, you know, Malachi McCourt, Frank McCourt's brother and, and uh, Frank himself, you know, told me you have a talent, you can write. Now I know I can write, but it's another talent altogether. Letting people know that you can write. For example, it's one thing to get elected president. That's a talent in itself. It's another thing to be able to do the job. That's another talent of the talent. They're two different talents. So that's always the, a chore for an entertainer. Okay. I'm funny. How do I let people know I'm funny? Because you write a book. I wrote Confessions, my first. Everybody told me it's a great book. Now, how to get that book out on social media? How to, how to get people engaged to take a look at the book? That's a whole different talent. It's almost as time-consuming as writing the book. Very time-consuming. You know I mean, you have a podcast. I mean, to push that podcast is a 24-7 hassle. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, after you get done with a podcast and you put it up, it's not like it's over. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Now, now the work begins. It's just right. like writing. Once you write the piece, it's not like it's over. You've got to edit, edit, edit. How can I say this in less words? How can I say it in less words without losing any of the content? You know, it's always about not wasting the reader's time, not wasting the listener's time. Well, you know, as much information as you can. Uh, it kind of reminds me of John Wooden, who was the head coach for UCLA in basketball. Actually, there's a chapter in our book about John Wooden. Really? Well, I mean, he yeah, enjoyed the Frank process. Right? Oh, oh, really? Frank, was, Frank went, to, went to dinner with John Wooden many times. He was more uh, into the process than the result, and the result came automatically because he wasn't discouraged by, you know, so-called failures at the beginning. He just kept at right. it. Right, and he had, he had a certain formula for success. When you talk to former UCLA players, and, of course, artists 
played in that game against UCLA for that national championship against John Wooden. Uh-huh. So uh, Frank talks about a cha- in, in one of the chapters that we, we wrote about is uh, his dinner with John Wooden. The guys that were at that 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 dinner, you know, where you're forming UCLA players, and they always talked about Wooden never talking about the game itself. It was always about the essence of success. What makes a successful player? And beyond that, what makes you a successful human being? And uh, that's a very interesting chapter, by the way. And if these lips could talk, available on a claim in one week, we'll come and have a publication. <laughs> i give it a little plug while I can. That's so cool. Can we talk about Confessions of a Bronx Bookie a little bit? I know that uh, Stephen Van Zandt, sure. you know, the E Street Band, uh, he, he endorsed it. I'm sorry, repeat that again, Gitzar. I said I know that's little Stephen Van Zandt, you know, the lead guitarist for Bruce oh, Springsteen, yeah. he endorsed Van it. He held up the, uh, a copy of Confessions, yeah, and pushed it for me on Facebook, which was a, a real blessing to me. As a matter of fact, with, if these lips could talk, we have Candace Bergen, we have uh, George Lopez, we have Brooke Shields pushing, pushing the book. So that's got to help circulation, you know, I mean, it's just got to. But Confessions, to me, I wrote Confessions because as an addicted gambler, sports gambler, I wanted to tell people why they can't win gambling, why, why it's impossible to beat sports betting. And uh, a lot of people run the misconceptions. Like, you know, when they, we talk about a bookie, they think, okay, well, there's what's called a vigorish. I'm sure you're familiar with it. You've got to pay 10% extra when you make the bet. For example, if you like the Giants over Dallas, Giants are playing Dallas, they're a four-point favorite. Well, when you bet $100 on the Giants and you lose, you have to pay 110 to win the 100 because there's a 10% juice. Of course, if you win the bet, there's no juice. So you win 100, but if you lose, you lose 110. That's called the vigorous. Okay. So most laymen, or the uninitiated, as I'll say, are under the impression that what a bookmaker does is, okay, I stand back and I say, well, God likes the Giants minus four, and Fred likes Dallas plus four, so I'll lay God's $100 off against Fred's $100, and I'll make 10 bucks, right? So at 10%, sure. that's a pretty good return when you're talking about seven or 800 people, you know? But that's not how it works. That's how everybody thinks it works. Okay. Here's how it really works. And this is why it's such an, uh, it's impossible to lose if you're a bookmaker. Impossible. I mean, it's because 10%, math is a pure science. One and one is always two, four and four is always eight, eight and eight is always 16. There's no room for variation. Math is a pure science. It's not okay. philosophy, it's not sociology. It's cut and dry. So, <laughs> here's how it works. Let's say there's 14 games in the NFL on a Sunday. Well, of those 14 games, maybe nine of them be worth three or $4,000 a game to a bookmaker, which is not really a lot of money when you're a bookmaker. It doesn't mean shit. So you don't even pay attention to them. But there'll be five games that you might have forty or $50,000 on. And those games would be like, if you're regional in New York, if the Giants are playing Dallas, well, that's going to be a big game. A lot of people are going to be betting on that game. Of course, the Sunday night game, it's the only game left. The Monday night game, there's going to be a lot of money on that game. But say on a Sunday, let's say uh, the regional games, Giants-Dallas, uh, the late game uh, at 8 o'clock, that's going to be a big game for you. You might have five games that are life and death that are going to mean like $150,000 difference. Now, if you're a bookmaker and you talk about the 10% juice, the vigorous, all you have to do is win two out of those five games. And because of the juice, you're going to break even. 
because you're going to win two out of five games, you're going to break even. If you win three out of five games, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to make money. If you win four out of five games, you're going to crush the players. The only way you can lose is if you lose four out of the five games. And you're going to lose, but you're not going to get killed. And that's going to happen maybe once or twice a season. But the other times in the week, you're going to win at least two out of those five games, and you're going to make and you're going to make money. If you win three out of five, like I said, you're going to be you're going to make a lot of money. If you win out four out of five, you're going to crush. But these lines are so laser accurate. They're so laser accurate that I can't tell you how many games are won and lost by a half a point. You know, it's these if bookmakers ran the country, there'd be no national debt. <laughs> Trust me, there just would be no national debt. But of course. I think the Romans have said it best. The Romans have a great adage. They say, those whom the gods would destroy, they make successful young. And I was a 24-year-old punk from New York who thought I knew everything. And uh, when I was making money as a bookmaker, and I made a lot of money, I was sticking up my nose. I had a conga line of hookers. I, mean, I was drinking. It was like, I'm never going to see another dry day. You know, because like another famous Irishman once said, Oscar Wilde, nothing succeeds like excess. Well, you know, <laughs> I was a... <laughs> pure example of that nothing seems like excess but uh let me ask you this through the excess of the drugs and the alcohol and everything you must have enjoyed it and you must have also suffered from it so yeah, you know what was I mean, what was the net of, of that whole thing for you well of course you know i had a ball while it was going on i mean alcohol is my drug of choice it's always been my drug of choice like i said it's a genetic disorder it's not too improbable of somebody named William Patrick Michael O'Connor, born in County Cork Island, would have a drinking problem. But uh, <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I did. And because I have a compulsive personality, I mean, I, I, I leapt into it both feet. I mean, I opened up both feet. I mean, I opened up bars that were very successful, and uh, not because so much that I wanted to make money, but because I wanted to make sure nobody shut me off at four o'clock in the morning. I wanted to have a place to drink, and, and plus, I was always chasing women because I was pre preoccupied with it. And that comes from a lot of self loathing, self esteem. You know, like if your father's an alcoholic, there's a reason that it's a genetic disorder. You know, if your alcohol runs in your family and your father's an alcoholic, I'm not a psychologist, but I've heard it analyzed that. Uh, a child feels that uh, his father prefers the bottle to, to him, and that creates self-esteem issues. So you're always, I mean, I was always trying to get laid, frankly. I mean, I was always chasing women because I always wanted to prove my worth. You know, I always wanted to think, well, if this woman thinks I'm, that she should go to bed with me, obviously I can't be too bad. And, and frankly, after Vietnam, and when I went to Vietnam, I mean, I, <laughs> I got to Vietnam when I was 19 years old. I think it was the first time I was ever on a plane in my life was to go to basic training at 18 because that's just the way it was in the 50s where I grew up, you know, and uh, the first plane I was ever on was in 1966 to go to basic training. Well, they sent me to Vietnam, and here I am, uh, a recovering Catholic, number one. Uh, number two, uh, just all this pent-up madness. And when I got to Vietnam, prostitutes were $4 a piece. Now, to me, that's not buying sex. That's a scholarship, you know. I, I, spent, the next, I spent the next year trying to screw as many women as I could. So maybe I was with a thousand women in the course of the year. I was 19. I could be with two or three women a day in them days. And, uh, and I did everything I could to do that. Now, when you come back from experience like that. No wonder why you have so much energy today. You must, you must have been like, you know, oh, off, like, off the chain Bangkok, back then. Man, when I hit Bangkok and I saw all the drugs and the women, I mean, uh, I was like Alcatraz hitting a glass of water. I exploded in 50 million different directions, you know. I mean, you could actually you walk into a club in Bangkok. 
And this is the way it was in 1969. You walk into a big club in Bangkok, and, there, and there'd be six, 600 women dancing on the dance floor with numbers on their back. And you look up on a big board, and all the numbers would be lit up, one to 600. And if you wanted a woman, you just call Mama San over and you say, I want number 14. And uh, it was four bucks. If you wanted number 14, 18, and 22, it was 12 bucks. So, I mean, I'm not proud of, uh, of the way I was, but that's the way I was. And uh, the one thing I can say is that I always had the uh, subscribe to the notion that treat a, treat a hooker like a queen and a queen like a hooker. You know, so I always treated them really well. You know, I mean, I always made sure that they had a good time because if they weren't having a good time, how the hell could I have a good time? But again, when you come back at 22 years old and now you're back in the States, that burger in a movie shit is sort of sailed. You know what I mean? That ship has sailed. <laughs> so uh, I still had a voracious appetite for, for, for women, for, uh, for the escapades and for, for the drinking, too, for the drinking. And when I got there, I mean, drugs were, I was paying, I used to send a kid I learned how to speak Thai when I was over there, and not because I was such so curious about life or such a, an avid learner. It's just that I wanted to know what the hookers were saying about me, so I learned how to speak Thai. And uh, I used to send this kid across the Mekong River into Laos, and it cost me five dollars to send him over and five dollars back for the ferry. And I'd send him and just take shopping bags and tell him to cut the tops of the plants in Laos, and he'd come back with two or three shopping bags full of pot, and it would cost me all of fifteen dollars. So. That, that was everywhere. Opium was everywhere. You could buy any any kind of narcotic you wanted right over the right over a drugstore. You didn't need a prescription or anything. I mean, any kind of opiate or anything else you wanted. That year, when I was nineteen in Vietnam, is still the most significant year of my life. I don't think I'll ever. Uh, if anything changed my life for better or for worse, uh, that was the year. I read when I came back from Nam everything I could about experience i said okay what the hell was that all about what the hell was this war all about so i read as many books as i could get my hands i read uh, the best and the brightest you know uh i read uh in retrospect i read uh bright shining lie by neil sheehan david havelstam of course wrote the best and the brightest and it was uh mcnamara's book in retrospect which really pissed me off because it was like mcnamara saying in his memoirs in retrospect oh well i guess i made a mistake you know that great for the 58,000 fucking poor bastards that died over there. But uh, I read everything I could get my hands on. But one book really read. And it was a book by a guy called Tim O'Brien. And he wrote a book, The Things They Carry. And if you ever want to know about the Vietnam War, that's the book I would recommend the most. Because it's beautifully written. And he was a ground pounder. And uh, he was a guy from Nebraska. He was a farm boy. What is a ground pounder? Uh, an infantry guy. You know, okay. Uh a guy in the infantry and two of the things that he wrote really, really resonated with me. And, and the first thing he said that really blew me away was, he's, you know, when I came back from Vietnam, now here's a guy from Nebraska who probably had never been on a plane in his life before either. And all of a sudden they sent him 12,000 miles away in the middle of the jungle. He said, when I came back from Vietnam, I had the strangest feeling that I was older than my father. And I had that same feeling. When I looked at my father, I said, well, you know what? He might be 30 years older than me, but what the hell does he know? He, he didn't see what I saw. And then he said another thing that blew me away. He said, imagine how odd it is or how mind-blowing it is for a 19-year-old boy from Nebraska to walk through a napalm village and watch pigs eat roast people. Jeez. Now, that's writing. I mean, that's so visual. It's so visceral that that's, that's great writing. That's, that's how you connect with people. That's, that's, that's writing. That, that's, that's an image that you'll never get out of your head. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. 
Hello again out there, everybody. This is Larry Kang. I'm 112 years old and still going strong. After five heart attacks, 10 marriages, four bankruptcies, and over 500 interviews, I didn't take the time to research beforehand while on CNN. Now I do infomercials and I feel better than ever. Why is that, you ask? Because I take Ginsana. Ginsana has over 69 herbs and secret ingredients that will keep you primed long after your time. And you'll know it's true by how much you pay in alimony and child support every year while a lesser man goes to bed at 6 p.m. Look for Jim Senna and find food and drug stores everywhere. You're on the air, caller. Go! All the drugs, the gambling, the alcohol, I mean, I finally put that in my rearview mirror at the age of 58 when I went up to Gainesville to go to school. And it was a series of coincidences or accidents, if you believe in coincidence. Some people say that coincidence is God's way of being anonymous. <laughs> it may or may not be true. Uh, but I can tell you that it was a strange series of uh, coincidences that, that made me start at the right. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I must have got at least 600 emails from people all over the world who I don't know that read confessions and said that it helped them get sober. So uh, maybe that was God's vision for me. And uh, I'm not a real fan of organized religion, but I definitely believe something's going on. You know, whatever you consider it, whether you consider uh -huh. it a higher power, whether you consider it's God, a mono, monotheistic God, or, uh, or or God that's between your ears, or, or an energy, or whatever you want to call it. But something is going on. Because I've had too many coincidences. You read confessions. I, the thing that gets me about co confessions is so many people said, you know, I believe this, but I don't believe that. I believe this, but I don't believe that. Well, everything they said they didn't believe was truth. And everything they said they did believe, I might have embellished. But the thing <laughs> about, yeah, it's amazing because, you see, no writer, you can tell the difference between truth and fiction because fiction has to be believable. A writer is not going to write fiction and make it unbelievable. So when something seems like it's absolutely unbelievable, it's probably true. And the things that happened to me, I had so many interventions. I mean, whether you call it God intervening or, or just mind-boggling things that I put into confessions. And, uh, yeah, at the beginning I of the book. Things that people didn't believe, but they were all true. No? The beginning of the book when you were driving and you had that, the incident. Stripes. Yeah, again, we're talking about the lead, you know, which is the most important part of a book. And the first line of confession is, uh, see if I can remember off the top of my head now. Give me one second. I'm having a, a 72 year old mind fart here. Uh, one second. Uh, the very first line is, uh, screw me. I'm having a moment here. Let me, let me grab confessions because it's important. What happened is you grab me with the first line. Then I tell the story about how I got sober and right. what happened to me. I was leaving a bar at four o'clock in the morning, blind drunk as usual. And always the last guy out of the bar. And I was driving home, and I was pissing rain that night, pouring rain. And I was just trying to keep uh, my eye on the road to get home alive. And uh, I came to a stop sign. I could see the stop sign. I saw a truck in front of me. It was a flatbed truck. So I was slowing up gradually to get to the stop sign because I was impaired, but I wasn't oblivious. And uh, what I didn't notice with the flatbed truck was that it had 20 or 30 pipes coming out of the back of the flatbed truck. And, of course, by the time I got to the stop sign, the pipes went through the front of my windshield and out the back and missed my head by about an inch on each side. So, I mean, I almost decapitated myself. But it was one of the most, the most frightening thing that you can imagine. Oh, uh, my God. So the, the, the first line of confessions is, 
Lost causes are the one we pray for the hardest. Lost causes are the ones we pray for the hardest. And I, then I tell that story about being a drunk and how I almost got decapitated. And then I actually sat there among the broken glass and started evaluating my life. And I started weeping and started realizing how close I was to death, how many times I had been so close to death. And, uh, and I had my epiphany. That's when I realized I had to get sober. But again, as I said, the first line of the book is lost causes are the ones we pray for the hardest. And then I tell my whole story in the very last line of the book. The kicker to tie the book together is Saint. I realized then when I finally got sober that St. Jude was right after all. There are no such thing as a lost cause. There's no such thing as a lost cause. We, you know, we all have the capability to change. It's just a question of whether we want to make that commitment. Putting the plug in the jug was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Do you feel that all people are redeemable? Without a doubt. Uh, you know, we all make our own choices. We have to live with those choices. But yeah, I'm sure that even even Adolf Hitler's mother looked at him when he was a little baby and said, look at little Adolf, how cute he is. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. I mean, we all make decisions along the way. And character, I think, really defines your destiny. I, despite the fact that I was a mess, I was raised in a strict Catholic home. And I, I was raised with a certain amount of morality. And of course, in the 50s, you know... We, Everybody loved Ike, and we all admired Kennedy, and, you know, we, uh, we had certain ideals about how the greater, the greater good, you know, about the greater good, the commitment to greater good. One of the reasons I joined the service at 18 was because I said, you know what, man, my country needs me. This country's given me everything. I'm an immigrant. I, I love this country maybe only the way an immigrant can. I said, I owe this country, and they want me to stop communism. Communism than an 18-year-old drunk from the Bronx. But <laughs> 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 to Vietnam and straighten these people out. How old were you when you came over from Ireland? Just two years old. I mean, we came over by boat, my brother and I. My brother's since dead. He died uh, drunk in a fire. He died in a fire, which is kind of odd because I became a New York City firefighter for 20 years and worked in the busiest sections of the Bronx and Harlem and was a first responder at 9-11. So it's kind of ironic that uh, if there is a God, he chooses to take my brother out in the fire because my brother was a deep sea diver, which is a very difficult, uh, you know, dangerous occupation. So he died in the fire. So I guess with the ironic, the irony of the Lord, I'll probably, I'll probably drown. <laughs> but uh, Don't yeah, say that, think, Bill. So the greater good was, 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 was yeah, and you know, when I was raised, I'm 72 years old. So when I was growing up in the 50s, we were watching movies from the 40s, you know, and it was always about Bo Jest and uh, movies about the greater good, movies about World War II, movies about people that sacrificed for the greater good. And it was always that sense of honor and ideal and you, you do the right thing. You know, even Bogart in the Maltese Falcon, you know, when a man's partner gets killed, a man's supposed to do something, you know, or, or Gary Cooper, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. You know, like all of that idealism was driven into us in the 50s and 60s with, through Hollywood and through books, uh, especially through books. You know, uh, uh, it's a far, far better thing I do now than I have ever done. You know, uh, from A Tale of Two Cities. All of that was there. It wasn't until Hollywood in the 70s when realism really came in with Pacino and De Niro and Taxi Driver and uh, Dog Day Afternoon when the realism and Joe, that movie Joe, and all the gritty stuff started to get, Hollywood became more real, less plastic. And I uh -huh. think a lot of that idealism, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but a lot of that idealism sort of fled the country. And along with the idea about civics, they don't teach civics in school anymore. They don't, people, majority of people don't even know how laws are made. I mean, this is a sad statistic, but I, uh, I remember this like it was yesterday, a teacher in a journalism class putting up a, or it was in a government class, putting up that only one in a hundred people in the United States could tell you the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. 
One in a hundred could tell you the five freedoms. Yet 80 out of a hundred could tell you the names of the five Simpsons. What are the five freedoms? Well, the five freedoms, uh, the First Amendment is uh, religion, of course, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of press, and then the freedom to petition the government. Those are the five freedoms guaranteed by our glorious uh, afterthought because the the amendments, the, the Bill of Rights was an afterthought. It wasn't written until seven or eight months after the Constitution. Uh-huh. It was just to, to, to protect. The Bill of Rights is to protect the people from the government. You know, that's exactly what the Bill of Rights is all about. And the five freedoms of the First Amendment, of course, the most important. I mean, everybody knows about the Second Amendment uh, because uh, the right wing has made that a point that, uh, that we all have a right to arm ourselves. That's true, but uh, it's a reason it's the Second Amendment. The First Amendment is the most important. Freedom of the press freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and the freedom to petition to go. And uh, they just don't teach civics in school anymore. Why? I don't know. But uh, maybe it's by design. But I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, if you have an uninformed electorate, then you can't have a successful republic. I'm I'm just rambling on here. Am I boring you to death here? (laughs) Well, a lot of thoughts are coming to mind. So we're in a uh, democratic republic. So do you think the leaders that we have are just our own fault? They're a reflection of the people in yeah, general? of course they're our own fault because we don't stay educated. I mean, one of the big tragedies, big tragedies of today's political situation is that we've become so divided that the right wing hates the left wing, the left wing hates the right wing. Well, we're a bird. We need both wings to fly. You sure. can't fly with one, just a left wing and you can't fly with a right wing. But what's happened is we've become so polarized because people, majority of them get their news from television. And television is about ratings. So the more polarized they can make their position, the more ratings they're going to get. And if people try and get a different point of view, I think Kennedy said it best. He called it the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. When I was a kid, <laughs> Harry Reasoner would come on and give you the news. Cronkite would tell you the news. If you wanted to get an opinion piece, well, you turn to the opinion op-ed page in the newspapers and you read an opinion piece. Eric Severi would give a two-minute editorial. Yeah, right, but he'd tell you it was an editorial. Uh, right, of course. Now it's all you know, editorial. If, the case, if you watch MSNBC, one guy comes on and, and they'll give a news report, and then they bring three talking heads on to tell you what he just said. Well, I know what he just said. I just listened to him. I don't need three guys to tell me what he said to spit it. And if you listen to Fox, it's the same thing. A guy will come on and tell you something, and then three guys will come on and tell you what he said. Well, I just know what he said. I just listened to him. So polarized. The problem with this polarization is that you can't talk politics anymore. And that's bad for the republic. You know, you're going to go to somebody's house for Thanksgiving and they say, look, Bill, come, but no politics. Don't talk politics because there's going to be an argument because we're so polarized. Well, guess what? If you don't talk about politics, that's one of the necessities of having a free republic. Right. You have to talk about it. It affects your life. Politics is, is sickening. Right. The way things are set up now that, you know, you're either on one team or the other team. You either exactly. for us or against us, and, exactly. uh, and that's, you can't that's have you, you can't find common ground. Even though there is a lot of common ground, exactly. And if you do find common ground, they'll figure out a way to polarize. You know, years ago in the fifties and sixties, we made a deal. The people, by by the people, I mean us, the Congress people, our government made a deal with the airways. The airways are our airways. They belong to the people of the United States. We made a deal and said, okay, you can use ABC, NBC, CBS, can use our airwaves, but one hour a day they got to devote to educating the public. That was the deal. And that means they were going to give them an hour of the news, and that's what the news was for, to educate the public. That was before Reagan did away with the, you know, with the FCC's regulation about fairness, the fairness regulation, 
and then they started to be allowed to make money with the news. And it became a viewing contest. You know, how many people could watch my station? How much money can I make selling advertising? Which is not the way the news is supposed to be. The news is to inform, not to make money. It's like other things, like medicine. I mean, why should medicine be about making money? Medicine is about making people well. Pharmaceutical companies. Right, and then you put those two together. You watch CNN, and it's sponsored basically by pharmaceutical companies. So how exactly. can so how can they report the news fairly about how pharmaceutical companies are are ripping us off? Well, they, they, there's a thing in journalism school they taught us about called the journalist dilemma, and the journalist dilemma is is basically this: you're a, a journalist, a television journalist, and you want to report the news, and you're going to report, report it fairly. So you go out to tell your story on the news that night, and your boss says, no, 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 we're not running that this way. The head of the network says, that's too pro this, too anti-pharmaceutical, it's too anti-big business, this is the way I want you to report the story. So now the journalist's dilemma is, do I want to maintain my integrity, or do I want to lose my job? Which makes makes, makes me lose my platform. And if you lose your platform, of course you got no voice. So you're willing to compromise your integrity for the sake of keeping your platform. Unfortunately, that's pretty much what television journalism is all about today. It's the people that run the studios. They have the, they have that channel precisely so they can push their opinion. So you're getting opinion journalism all the way across the board, and you're not getting fair news stories. You know? I, I want to ask you about this. When, when I saw the Democratic National Convention, I thought it was like a slick infomercial. And when I saw yes. the Republican National Convention, it was almost like WrestleMania or something. And <laughs> I just don't understand. A diaper, a diaper of lies. I mean, you know, <laughs> the thing that blew me away about the Republican nomination is the guy they were selling, you know, Trump, and the guy they were against, Biden, neither one of those people remotely resembled the guys they were representing. <laughs> you know, like, of course. The, the Trump they were selling wasn't the Trump that I know, and the Biden they were talking about wasn't the Biden I know either. I mean, if you're going to paint Biden as the second coming of Che Guevara, a guy who's going to uh, lead the, the, these uh, tribes of troublemakers through the streets with pitchforks, and this is Joe Biden we're talking about. This is 40 years in, in both hands of the Congress, glad handling, glad handling. He's a political windsock, you know what I mean? Sure. He's hardly Che Guevara. I mean, if they're going to paint him as a radical, good God almighty, imagine what would have happened to Bernie with Iran. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a sad state of affairs. As citizens of the United States of America, we deserve this. That's all you I can get say. The government you deserve. You definitely right. get the government you deserve. And it's not just about Trump. This has been going on for forty years. I got to tell you, as as a political junkie from the time I was, I can remember. Geez, I remember being seven years old, and uh, when Ike was running against Adlai Stevenson. I've never seen the country in the, in the condition it's in right now because the information is so buffered and 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 skewed that what you, you're not getting any people don't read facts they don't care about facts not and at all what happens now of course if you live inside a bubble of right wing news or left wing news I don't care if you're watching MSNBC and then you look at the other side of it it's so counterintuitive that there's a cognitive dissonance that you say to yourself well that can't be true because it doesn't let me go back to what I what I feel comfortable with and let me read my own point of view you know what I mean so the more inside that bubble you are, the more likely your fairness is going to shrink into that bubble. It's like being a compulsive person. Believe me, as a compulsive gambler, alcoholic, woman chaser, drug addict, your your world shrinks. If you're a drunk, 
you only hang around with other drunks because if, if the people are not a drunk, why would they interest you? Do you think you're going to find a junkie at the Metropolitan Museum of Art staring at the Ren Wenhua? No. He's got too busy trying to get junk to put in his arm. You, your world narrows. And it's the same thing politically. If you just listen to one point of view continually, your world gets narrower and narrower. Sure. Until eventually you won't let any other ideas in. And that's a tragedy. It's like what happens to your what happens to your brain if you stop using it, and you know it becomes you know atrophy yeah, sets in. Like any other, it's like well, they say the two best things you can do to prevent Alzheimer's, and I think about stuff like this because at seventy two, it's always a concern. Uh, the two things you can do best to prevent Alzheimer's is one, exercise frequently, put as much oxygen in your brain as you can. Uh-huh. The second thing is to learn something new. Is whether it's an instrument, whether it's a language, whatever. It's to create more brain cells. Because the other ones are dying. So you've got to create more brain cells. And uh, You're scaring me, Bill. I know, I know, I know. I've got to start exercising wife, again. Like the, like the old joke, my wife left me because uh, of two things. You know, she told me, one, I never listened to her. And, oh, I forget the other thing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so what happens is your world narrows and... Uh, and fortunately for me, stand-up comedy started creating new synapses in my brain because I had to memorize bits, and it was, it was a whole new experience. So it, 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 it helped my memory get sharper. And, sure. Uh, and writing, and writing, you know, uh, was another outlet for me to create new synapses in my brain. And believe me when I tell you, guys, when I went to college at, at uh, 58, things that used to just blow into my mind, names, you know, that used to just fly into my mind, weren't flying in quite as quickly. And I said, I was starting to worry about because all the years of abuse, the drinking, how many brain cells, like God knows. I mean, there was times I'd drink for four or five days. You know, I wouldn't remember anything. But I'd drink for four or five days, put coke up my nose and wouldn't remember anything. But how many brain cells I killed, I don't know. But I can tell you that my memory has improved immensely since the University of Florida because of, of the life that I put behind me and, and the life that I've created, you know, which is, uh, which basically I reinvented myself at, at 62. So when you say that you're sober, would you say that you don't drink alcohol at all at anymore? All. No, I can't have one beer. What about, half a beer. what about weed? I smoke weed, you know, but, uh, but I've been smoking weed since I was 16 and I don't, I might smoke a joint a week. My wife's a very heavy uh, pot smoker, but I might smoke pot once a week. I do mushrooms once in a while with her, you know. What does that do for you? Oh, it's great. I mean, especially if you're in bed, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a great, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fun, you know, but, but again, it's not my drug of choice. Uh-huh. I can, I can pick up a, a, a joint and walk away from it. If you put, let me explain to you what it's like to be an alcoholic genetically. If you took a table and you put on that table, speed, crack, heroin, marijuana, LSD, mushrooms, and a half a glass of beer, the most dangerous thing on that table for me would be that half a glass of beer. If I drink that half a glass of beer, I'm a dead man. A dead man. There's no way in the world I could ever stop drinking again if I ever take that one sip. No way. I haven't had a drink now in, I'm not even sure, 14 years, 15 years, 16 years. But I think about alcohol every single day, even to this day. Every single day I think about it because it's my drug of choice. I lost to my, to my son in a little uh, wrong turn with uh, barbiturates and uh, oxycodone. And I told them, I said, listen, man, genetically, you're compulsive, you know? And now, fortunately, alcohol is not your drug of choice. Now, I'm going to tell you something. 
You're going to make a few more wrong turns around the way. Find the drug that you like the most and then stay as far as hell, hell away from that as you can. That's your weak, That's your Achilles heel. That's the one. I'm not saying live life for a hermit. I'm not saying never get high, never have a good time, never go out. But find the one you like the most. Find the one that, that does the most for you and stay as far as hell away from that as you can. <laughs> Which is a difficult test. You know, there's another chapter in If These Lips Could Talk about Frank's relationship with uh, Jay Thomas, who uh, played Carla's husband on Cheers. Well, one of his best friends was Robin Williams. Now, Robin Williams, Frank goes into detail about Robin Williams. One of the things Billy Crystal said about Robin Williams really resonates with me. He said that when Robin quit doing coke, because I could see how difficult it was for him. He did it, but he could see how difficult it was because that was his drug of choice, right? Now, with me, imagine a guy where when I drink, I feel as good as I've ever felt in my life. I mean, it's just the perfect drug for me. It makes me still stay up and active, and, and, and it makes me even looser than I am now, and I'm, I'm hardly filtered or registered by any stretch of the imagination. But I could walk into a bar with 100 people in there and felt like I could take over the whole bar, you know, just with jogging and, and being who I was, because when I was drunk, I was up, and I was ready to party. And it made me feel confident. And it was the perfect drug for me. So when I quit, I said to myself, well, what am I, how can you possibly have fun if you don't drink? You know, the realization to come to that, to, to face that and say, how can you have fun if you don't drink? I mean, it's the only way to have fun. So it's really, really difficult to walk away from a drug that makes you feel perfect. Becomes part of your self-image. Without a doubt. And, and you know, any uh, inhibitions you might have. Well, they fade with alcohol. You know, I'm not a lunatic, but if you get if I, you get me drunk, you could somebody could say to me, "Hey, Bill, I got an idea. Let's jump out of a plane and shoot heroin on the way down, and let's not even use a parachute." But I'll say that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's give it a go. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was in a room, uh, an AA room, one day, and uh, about thirty people, I guess, at the meeting. And the guy got up and he was telling his story, and he said, "How many out there have ever been arrested?" And of the thirty people, everybody put up their hand for me. Right. Now, the only reason I had never been arrested because I, I was on the fire department, and every time I got pulled over, I always had the badge, and I give them a plea and say, you know, I'm a fire, firefighter, and you know, a little professional courtesy, I'd be appreciated, etc. Anyway, I avoided jail, and the 20, 29 guys or whatever put up their hand. Who out there has ever been arrested? Twenty nine guys raised their hand, and the guy said, "Okay, now leave your hands up if you were drunk when you were arrested," and every one of them kept their hands up <laughs> because it strips your inhibition. Uh-huh. You don't have any common sense. You know what I mean? Like when you're drinking, anything goes. I mean, with me anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's people that don't have this disease. They can have a few beers on the, on the weekend. It's no problem. They can have a bottle of wine with their with their pasta. No problem. But I can't have a. I don't want. I don't want a bottle of wine. I want ten bottles of wine. It's like for me. It's like eating a Cheerio. I don't want one Cheerio. I want a bowl of Cheerio. You know, that's the way it is when you're an alcoholic. You know. And the only way not to get drunk is never to take that first drink. You can't get drunk if you don't drink. Can't get drunk. It's impossible until you put that first drink. If I took one beer and I broke that seal, I don't really believe that I'll ever be able to do it again. Everything, whenever I get that feeling that I want to drink, and it's every day, I just look up at the sky to whatever higher power might be up there, and I say, listen, Lord, get that stupid fucking idea out of my head. <laughs> just get it out of my head. Because I'm an alcoholic and I can't drink. It's that simple. If I drink, I die. And I know that. In the late 80s, there was a song by Ozzy Osbourne called The Demon Alcohol. And he said what you were just saying there, that 
you know, one drinks too much and ten's not enough. I'm just not enough. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's the way it is. It's it's impossible for me to have a drink. I can't do it. I mean, and I don't think I haven't thought about it. You know what? It's been 15, 16 years. I should be able to have a couple of beers on a weekend. Surely, to God, I'm not the same person. But that's not the way alcohol works. It's a really uh, insidious disease. And uh, one of the guys in the rooms had said one time, and I, I didn't believe it at the time, but I believe it now. He said that even if you stop drinking for 10 years, the disease continues to progress. So if you don't drink for 10 years and then you pick up a drink, it's just like you never put down a drink. The disease is still progressed, which is a hard concept to, to imagine. But uh, I've seen too much proof of it. I know I saw a guy who hadn't had a drink for 15 years and he started out, uh, he started out having uh, a little cooking wine when he was, when he was cooking. And uh, two weeks later, he was back to drinking full time and a year later he was dead. Man, that's heavy, Bill. Have you been a motivational speaker for people with addiction problems? No, no, I haven't. But I've, you know, I've, 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 I've spoken for a lot of groups, and no, I haven't. But it I, I it seems I'm like trying that's trying to devote myself to helping uh, for other alcoholics. My, my works, though, I got to tell you, between the uh, professions of a bronze bookie and the Mick, uh, both of you know, show you, it's a character arc. So you got he starts off with a character who's a complete mess, and at uh-huh. the end he finds he finds salvation. You know, he finds himself, and then he goes about telling you how he found himself. So. Uh-huh. In my writing, I think I've reached a lot of drunks. I hope so, anyway. I mean, uh, again, I'm not a big spiritualist, but if you read Confession, and, and you have read Confessions, yes. there's five or six chapters in that thing that are just utterly unfathomable. You say, well, this God is trying to reach this guy. Somebody's got uh-huh. a plan for this guy. Uh-huh. I, mean, uh, I mean, there's something going on. I mean, for me to deny that would just be uh, unempirical. Un- I mean, you know... Something is going on. Now, what my purpose in life is, I don't know. I don't think I've reached it yet or I would be dead. Maybe it is about reaching other alcoholics. I don't know what plans uh, God has, but I need a platform first. I'm hoping that uh, good things will happen with these books. And, uh, of course, with Frank's help, because he helped me write these books, and also with his expertise and the people he knows, maybe I'll get that platform and be able to do some good. I mean, I'd certainly like to do some good. I mean, I, I, I... I'm not an immoral person by any stretch of the imagination. I uh, I write about all the immoral things I do because before you can show redemption, if you're a writer, you show, you don't tell, you show. Uh-huh. And before you can write about redemption, you've got to show the sin. Well, as one critic who read Confessions of a Bronx book, he said, wow, you had a lot to confess. <laughs> <laughs> it probably could have even been a longer book. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's another thing. When you write a book, you say to yourself, how the hell can I write a book? You know, a book is a daunting prospect. But when you think about it, if you write a page a day in a year, that's 365 pages. Sure. If you edit that down to a good 220 pages, well, you got yourself a book. It's about, you ever been on a ski slope and you look down a mountain, you say, how the hell am I going to get down there? Well, you take one little slope at a time. You uh-huh. divide it into small pieces and you do it. Right. Yeah, I could have made Confessions a much, much longer book. And and then when I wrote The Mick, I, I sort of put a, my other 20 years, you know, my life in the fire department as, 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 as a drunk, as a drunk in some of the busiest houses in the South Bronx and, and made that into a story about a guy who's a mess and how he finds salvation. So maybe that is what I'm supposed to be doing is writing about salvation or writing about sobriety. I don't know. I just write what I know. I'll tell you. I'll you tell know. you. The, my favorite part of Confessions was about the neighborhood you grew up in in, in your childhood. Yeah. Well, that was. You know what? Uh, I'm actually very proud of those chapters because uh, it's a very difficult thing to describe the Bronx in the early '50s. Uh, the camaraderie. I mean, we all lived in tenements. 
you know, five-story tenements and six-story tenements and what we call H-type buildings in the, in, in the, on the fire department. We have two buildings that are six stories each and they're connected by a common hallway, you know, and uh, with all those apartments in one little neighborhood, you went downstairs, say you were 13 years old, there might be 40 kids 13 years old to play with, you know, so we, we had this camaraderie growing up that was... Uh, Kind of a remarkable connection. Even today, I might not see one of the kids I grew up with for 30 years. Well, they're still going to be my best friend because once you people know where you came from, they could be the CEO of the biggest company in the world. That doesn't make any difference. He might be still called Blinky to me. You know, I know him as Blinky. He'll always be Blinky because we banged on pipes to get heat. You know, we lived in tenements. They, I know his roots. He knows mine. So that common bondage. It's like the fire department a lot. We have a, we have a camaraderie that's beyond belief because we live with each other. We go down hallways. We defend each other. We just like going to war. Nobody goes to war for their flag. Nobody goes to war because they hate the Japanese or the Koreans or the Vietnamese. You go to war, but once you're there, you fight for the guy next to you. You fight to keep him alive, and he fights for you. He's got your back. You got his. That's what combat's all about. That's what you fight for. And that's what growing up in the Bronx was. There was this this identification. Of course, was all ethnic groups, all different ethnic groups. You know. I grew up with Puerto Ricans, Italians, Germans, Greeks, Jews, you know, blacks. It was, you know, it was, it was a neighborhood in the Bronx. But that common connection, it was uh, that camaraderie. Maybe that's why I searched out the fire department uh, or I became a fireman because that same kind of camaraderie was something that was very special to me. Maybe that's why I went to Vietnam. I mean, I, I know that camaraderie of the people that I was with when I was in the Army and the Air Force, rather, was a special, special connection, you know, and uh, that's something that uh, that's immeasurable. You can't you can't measure it. So those those chapters that I wrote about the Bronx and it was like growing up in the fifties are very special to me. And, and I've had a lot of guys who did grow up in that experience tell me how uh, special they thought those chapters were. So that meant a lot to me. You know. Cool. Of course, the last time we talked, you told me how you knew Joe Pesci before he was in Goodfellas. Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good story. I met Joe I met Joe Pesci through. Uh, through a guy called Vinnie Bondi, who's a, a, a wise guy over in Arthur Avenue, and, I, and uh, he was a runner for a big bookmaker over there. But that's in the book, and uh, I, I encourage you, you, your, your listeners to, to, to take a look at Confessions. If nothing else, go to Amazon and uh, punch in Confessions of a Bronx Bookie and read the reviews. Yeah, I don't want to uh, give away too much about the book. <laughs> People should go and read the book. You'll, you'll be happy you did. And not because I wrote it. I mean, I, I have never anybody tell me that didn't enjoy that read. And you know what? It's a quick read. It's an easy read. It's what I call toilet reading because every chapter is self-contained. Every chapter has a beginning and an end, and it's all leading up to a final conclusion. But it's the kind of book you could sit on a toilet bowl, read a chapter, put it down and say, oh, that was good, and pick it up the next day when you go to a toilet bowl and read another chapter and you wouldn't have missed a beat. You know, it's that kind of book. And that's the way I wrote the Mick. And as a matter of fact, that's the way me and Frank wrote If These Lips Could Talk, which was an easy thing for me to do because when he was talking about all the people that he's met, people that, that changed his life, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Candace Bergen and all, all you know, Rod Carew, Wallace uh, Gilmore, I said, well, this is easy for me. This is the way I write. I can just write a chapter about each one of these guys and, and have a good lead and a, and a kicker. And then we collaborated on the book, of course. I kicked it back to him. He kicked it back to me. And then I went across over the phone. That's the first thing we say to each other is, do we need that phrase? Do we need that word? Do we need that? Can we get, can we get, can we get rid of that? How much can we get rid of? Because, you know, writing is like architecture. It's about as much as you put into it. When you build a, a great piece of architecture, what's missing is, important, is as important as what's there. 
Sure. Faith is just as important. It's the same thing with writing. Same you know, thing with music, too. You want to eliminate when it's not necessary. What is it, what is it Michelangelo said in that great book uh, written about uh, uh, about Michelangelo uh, in the 50s? What the hell's the name of that book? Uh, see, this is the bitch about getting all the guards. Uh, there's a great saying that Michelangelo he said, he said. He said that David was there. That David was inside the piece of marble. He said all I had to do was eliminate the stuff that wasn't the David. Oh, that's great. Oh, the name of the book is The Agony and the Ecstasy. The Agony and Ecstasy, right. It's a great book. But but he said, look, it's no mystery. I looked at the piece of marble and I saw the David. All I had to do was chip away what what, what didn't belong there. That's art. Wow. Well, thank you, Billy. You're you're very inspiring to me. Well, I'm glad to hear that, dogs. I'm going to get one more plug in before I leave. Okay. (laughs) Please encourage anybody out there to check out uh, my Facebook page. So check out the Facebook page. I make a mook, a Nick, a mook, and a Mike, and uh, look at some of our back episodes. And uh, uh, again, uh, if these lips could talk, it's coming out in a week. It's uh, published by Acclaim. It's going to be followed shortly by another book called uh, Lamar's Vision, which is a book about uh, the NFL and uh, how it became the NFL and the merger itself, and a lot about the mob and everything that was behind it. I is think it, people will find it illuminating and a different take on the NFL. Uh, that's being published by a claim also. You mean Lamar Hunt of the Chiefs? Yeah, he was H.L. Hunt's son, who was the richest man in the world. Uh, uh-huh. It was his vision to start the AFL. Right, Eventually yeah. merged with the NFL. An oil billionaire. And he decided he wanted to get a team into the NFL, and they wouldn't allow him, so he started his own league. And, wow. Uh, that's how the AFL and the NFL became what they are today, the conglomerate they are today. They merged. And it's a story about that merger, but it's also a story about football. It's a story about corruption, because whenever there's a lot of money involved, there's always corruption. And uh, I think people will find it a good read. I think they're going to like if these lips could talk, that me and Frank Pace wrote together. And uh, yeah, I urge your readers to go on Amazon and check out the reviews for Confession and uh, make their own decision. Well, you know, but, you've, uh, you've had a very rich life, but I still feel like you're going places. Well, I certainly feel lips to God's ears, my brother. I hope you're right. You're going to find out. Uh, one thing's for certain, I'm never bored. You know, so that's a good thing. That's what it's all about. I recently married. I got married two years ago, which I know that I'd never do again. A married girl, 20 years, my junior. She's a great girl. Jennifer, she's an RN, which is not a bad thing at all to marry an RN when you're 72 years old. Hey, my wife's an RN. Yeah, it's a great thing. She's a great person. <laughs> It's a great commodity to have around when things ain't going good. You want to check everything. <laughs> My wife was also an acrobat. So it was a 52-year-old acrobat. And here I am, a 72-year-old ex-drunk banging around. But uh, I hit the jackpot. She's a great girl. Matter of fact, today's our second wedding anniversary. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. But uh, it's always great talking to you, Gogs. I, I'm sorry I'm such a well, windbag. I don't shut up unless you get a word in. But... Uh, Hey, it's the nature of the beast. Believe me, when I hear my interviews, I always say, why did I talk there? <laughs> <laughs> so you did me a big favor. Well, I love you, pal. I hope it goes well for you. Okay. And, lo- uh, I'd like to get a link to that if you want, and I'll share the hell out of it. Sure. Love you too, Billy. Have a, a great anniversary evening. Stay well in the bill, my friend. Stay well. <laughs> All right. Take care, pal. Okay, take care. Hello, this is Gargs Allen, host of the Gargsville Podcast, here to tell you about three shows I have on WGOTLP Gainesville 100.1 FM. 
and they are namely Power Pop Portal, the Gainesville Grooves, and the Gargsville Radio Hour. Power Pop Portal has been around since 2011. It started on rock104.com, and it plays Power Pop from around the world. The Gainesville Grooves plays music connected locally to Gainesville in some way, and the Gargsville Radio Hour was my original interview show, which also is sometimes a radio theme music hour. That's the Gargsville Radio Hour, the Gainesville Grooves, and Power Pop Portal. You can also hear any of these shows on WGOT.org or on the TuneIn app under WGOT. Archive shows are available at Mixcloud.com. Thanks so much to Billy O'Connor for a great interview. Man, he's really inspiring, isn't he? Perhaps one day, too, I might write something of value. I wonder if I ever could. He talked about sports a bit, among many other things, which reminds me that as of this recording, my favorite team, my beloved Boston Celtics, are playing game one of the Eastern Conference NBA Finals tonight against the Miami Heat. You know, I get very emotional when I watch them play, so I will try to be the Buddha. Please pray for me. Om Nam Yo, Celtics may win or lose, but I am equipoise Kyo Hare Krishna. Please send some positive vibes my way that I will get through the rest of this NBA playoff season without getting too up or too down. Okay, I promised you an Uber story and now you're going to get it. You know, I have done so much Uber driving day after day for the last five years that I have become habituated to expecting people to grade me between one of five stars on every encounter in exchange I have with anyone in my life outside of Uber. If you like, you can consider supporting this podcast through Patreon or giving me a good rating if your platform allows. Anyway, some Uber rides are more memorable than others, although most are not memorable at all. What I'm going to read to you now is from my Uber diary log from a ride that took place on December 20th, 2019 BC or before covid Just picked up a student from Chile named Pablo at an apartment complex. I had to wait about 45 seconds in front of his building before he came running toward the car, toting a backpack and a look. As the great band Pink Floyd once said, of terminal shock in his eyes. I hope you don't mind, but I have to run back into the apartment for a second, he said. No problem, I said. Then he took off dirt flying high behind him. As I waited... I had to pee pretty badly and contemplating going to the side of the building and relieving myself, but I decided to take no chances and hold it in. Just then he appeared again, running full speed like a fullback being chased by linebackers, all the while holding about eight empty pizza boxes piled high in front of him. I'm really sorry, but I couldn't leave these behind for my roommates to deal with, he said as he stuffed the pizza boxes onto the floor of the front passenger seat. Then he picked up his rather heavy-looking backpack, jumped into the seat, his feet crushing down on the boxes, and swung his backpack around like a tether ball until it landed on his lap. We drove to the next building where he disposed of the boxes in the dumpster, spilling crumbs of pizza crust all over my Prius floor. I'm sorry, I'll tip you well, he said. About how long is the ride to the bus station, he asked. It says 18 minutes on the GPS, I said. Well, the bus is scheduled to leave there in 12 minutes. 
I said, dude, I generally drive the speed limit, but for your situation, I'll make an exception and push it when I feel I can safely. Thank you, he said. On the way there, I showed off my Mario Andretti skill set, changing lanes seamlessly and just making lights before they changed, as luck would have it. All the while, I learned about the history of Chilean politics since 1973 and how his dad came here and fell in love with Americana. His dad was born in 74, making his dad 10 years younger than me, which made me feel as old as Matusla. So, I take it you like pizza, I said. Yes, I get it often, as you might be able to tell, he said, referring to his slightly portly physique. It took me about 14 minutes to approach the Rosa Park bus station, but when we got in eye's view of the place, he noticed that the bus was out of the lot and moving toward us on the road, already having left the bus station on its journey to Orlando. There it is, he said, as the bus approached us from the opposite direction. What are we going to do? Without missing a beat, I started to take a left turn in front of the bus, but stopped in such a way that the bus was hesitant to try to squeeze by me. Pablo then jumped out of the car, backpack swinging as he ran to the trunk to get his suitcase. He couldn't open it and yelled out to me for help as the bus creeped within inches of him. I got out and opened the trunk. He waved the bus down, but the bus kept slowly proceeding as I got out of its way. Pablo then chased after it across the side street, and the bus finally stopped and opened its door as the disheveled-looking Pablo climbed its stairs. After he got in, a woman parked at the stop sign and watching all the fun, looked at me and gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. Feeling quite content with myself, I then drove home, which was close by, to use the bathroom and tell my family of my adventures. After I got home, I noticed that Pablo had given me a $10 tip. Thank you, Pablo, and thanks for stopping by for another episode of the Gargasville Podcast. I hope you enjoyed yourself as much as I enjoyed myself. Until we meet again, see ya, Hare Krishna. And remember, as Neil Young once said, keep on rocking in the free world. Listening to E.D. Raquel I could do much worse while driving on this earth I could be lost on the highway to hell Picked up a girl who just woke up She's kind of pretty, she works at Panera She said, thank you for doing what you do I bet you'd rather be in Copacabana Uber do if you want to go somewhere, baby, I could go with you. Uber duber. Uber duber do. If you want to go somewhere, my lady, I could go with you. I picked up a nurse from Ghana. Her dark chocolate skin is smooth and glowing. She said she don't believe in no Valentine's Day. She just has faith in Jesus because he's all loving and all knowing. I picked up a dude. He had lots of aptitude. He said, I'll navigate you to the cleaners. We talked NBA and all the 
football players today But his attitude compared to mine Seemed to be much meaner sunglasses on he said drive me to the dawn he didn't sound like anything like Casey Kasem so I thought he was a liar he asked me if I'd share my rounds I said no sir I'm in Maya Once again, float off into different frequencies, the night dreams and the daydreams. Until the next time we meet again in Gargsville.